Welcome to the Military Psychology Podcast from the American Psychological Association's Division 19. My name is Dr. Katie McNamara, and I have the pleasure of guest hosting a number of episodes in our diversity series. We'll be speaking with LGBT service members, researchers, and policymakers to educate military behavioral health providers on the unique considerations involved in caring for this population. As a new guest host, you may be wondering, well, who the heck is she? I'm a PhD level licensed clinical social worker, and I've been a behavioral health provider in the Air Force for nine years. As always, my opinions are mine, all mine, and I don't speak for the Air Force or the Department of Defense. I'm an openly and proudly bisexual woman, and my pronouns are she, her. I wrote my dissertation on the outness of LGBT service members which I will talk to you about for hours and hours if you ever want me to. Now, on to our guest for today's episode. Our guest today is the incredible, the kind, the whip-smart Lieutenant Colonel Julie Glover. Colonel Glover is a physician assistant in the Air Force, currently serving as the operations officer of her squadron and pandemic response flight commander at Joint Base Langley-Eustis. She also has been deployed twice to Liberia and Afghanistan, and she holds a doctorate in emergency medicine. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Appreciate you inviting me. Happy to, to be here. So please tell us where in the world are you? How are you feeling today? What did you do this weekend? So like you mentioned, I'm at Joint Base Langley Uses, which is in Hampton Roads, Virginia. And this weekend I did... Nothing. And it was great. I napped. Mm-hmm. Well, not really napped. I laid on the couch. And sometimes you just have to do that to like feed your soul. Yes. <laughs> I work a lot of hours. So, yes. yeah. About how many hours would you say you work a week? Maybe between 55 and 60. Depends. I know That's I have like four jobs. So, yes, I believe you always have. So, Julie and I have been friends since. I want to say 2013, we were stationed together in Aviano and you're always doing four to 12 jobs, winning (laughs) very impressive awards. And we're grateful to have you in our Air Force. Well, yeah, Yeah. I just (laughs) do my job. That's, I I mean, it's nothing really uh, anything to write home about, I guess. Oh, stop. I really just wanted to make you feel super uncomfortable right at the beginning. (laughs) And I have succeeded. It's a a quality. (laughs) (laughs) It's every therapist's quality. You can make other people feel really uncomfortable if you need to. (laughs) Okay. So the reason that we had you here is one, because you are such a kind, wonderful person who is very open and interested in sharing your experience for the benefit of others. And two, because I just wanted to catch up with you. You know, we haven't seen each other for a long time. Yeah. And a podcast seemed like a pretty good excuse. <laughs> I like it. Mm-hmm. So to catch With our thousands listeners of up. people. <laughs> yes. So Welcome to catch to our, our, <laughs> our listeners up. Can you tell us where you hail from? What was your family dynamic like? What got you into the military? Gotcha. So I actually grew up here in Virginia till I was about 13. My parents retired from Langley and we moved to Pennsylvania, which is where my mom is originally from. And I spent a good part of my life there until I graduated from PA school in 2006 from the sales university. And then in 2008, I joined the military and I've always wanted to join the military. It's kind of like in our, in our blood, I guess. Everyone from my grandfather, his brothers, my mom, my dad, my uncle, my cousins have been in the military. So it's just, that's what I wanted to do first. And then I kind of figured out what I wanted to be in the military. Um, So I am living my dream. And as frustrating as the Air Force can be at times, I really do enjoy it and love that and love leading people. And so it's, Uh uh, it's nice to be and actually the same place that was almost 30 years ago from, from mm-hmm. uh, when my family lived here before. So nice full circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to say your love of the military is so apparent. It's really, I want to say, kind of rare to meet somebody who really truly believes in the mission, who bleeds blue, as they say, and who 
wants to serve as long as they possibly can and wants to get other people excited about it too. So that is super apparent. And I feel like we're grateful you're like that. Thanks. Yeah. So I, mean, I definitely get that. It's, it's hard sometimes. And uh, a lot of people want to get out immediately, especially in the medical field. But, you know, sometimes you have to look past it. And having worked on the other side of things too, it's not exactly grass always greener. So yeah, you just mm-hmm. kind of pick what you can accept and make the best of what you can as well. Mm-hmm. And so you, you grew up on the East Coast. You don't have any siblings, right? I have a half sibling and a stepbrother as well, or a half, half sister, stepbrother. And they live with my biological father and stepmother out in Arizona, but I don't really talk to them much. Mm, okay. um, I think the last time I saw my sister was three, four, five years ago, but we maybe talk a couple times, a couple times a year. Okay. Sorry, cat in the background. So. <laughs> <laughs> the cat. Oh, does she want to join us? Here she yeah, is. he's going to join us probably. That's the. Oh my gosh, remember that cat that I used to babysit? Dude, that was him. Dude, too. I loved him. <laughs> oh, so fluffy. Okay. So you are somebody who has always just known you'd be in the military. It was just a matter basically of what you do in it. And you've excelled, you enjoy it. And I'm aware that you've served both pre and post Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Can you tell us a bit about your personal journey pre and post? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually am kind of late to the game or, well, I say that, but dated a girl in college and kind of was one of those people who was thinking, nah, this is just a phase, mainly because growing up Catholic, that was kind of still ingrained and you never knew where that was going to take you. I think the religious trauma kind of stuck with me at that point in time. And it was at that point in my life, you know, when I was what, 22, where he didn't, he didn't want to believe that. So for a while I was dating guys and I didn't really think of myself as bisexual or pansexual or any of those, pick an, pick an alphabet uh, <laughs> letter or whatever, uh, <laughs> until about 27 when it kind of basically like slapped me in the face and it was still before don't ask don't tell and I finally started accepting myself for who I was but I was a young officer at the time and I couldn't really let myself be me which was hard because I am an open person I'm like an open book and I I will try to share my experiences with people and I couldn't really do that um, at the time I was actually playing softball. It was funny and ironic at the same time. Um, so, and you could tell that people were trying to get me to like open up, but because I wanted to also protect them, it was a lot of like plausible deniability and I didn't really open up to them. There were only like, I think two people that I really did allow myself to open up. One of them being another officer who kind of figured it out on their own. And I didn't necessarily want to lie because they literally were just like, well, who is she? And I was like, oh, shit. Mm. (laughs) um, I wasn't just gonna, at that point, deny. Other people didn't really ask straight out because I didn't, I don't think they really wanted to know. I think they too were giving me the space for plausible deniability at the time Mm -hmm. too. So once Don't Ask, Don't Tell went away, it allowed me to finally just be who I was and explain to everyone around me, like kind of the changes that had been occurring because they'd noticed and people were then like, well, I mean, we figured. And I was like, well, nobody told me. (laughs) And, you know, looking back after that, of course, hindsight's 2020 and it made a lot of sense. And since then, you know, it's, I just kind of lived my life the way that, that I have. And, you know, I've been with my partner for five almost six years Hmm. and uh so and i still have not met her you have not met her no so odd (laughs) (laughs) that's military life though you might though in a month i think i'm gonna come out there for a conference so she may come with me you guys can hang out better Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay so if i'm understanding right 
around 22, you started to question your sexuality. You weren't fully, you know, draping yourself in the pride flag quite yet because Mm. you had these messages from your Catholicism, your background, which you were still kind of grappling with at the time. And then over the years, you were dating men. And then suddenly it sounds like you met a woman who you were in a relationship with, but you couldn't be open about. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When looking back, there were times where it certainly was very eye-opening and you just kind of push them off. And I think many people have these kind of moments where when you think about them, you're like, (laughs) duh. Like, Like, oh yeah, clearly would have been a gay moment um, <laughs> or may want to may wanted to figure it out at that point in time. I think the other biggest part of that, of, of not allowing myself to think about it is because Catholicism obviously isn't one of those religions that really like embraces that. I mean, they've come a little bit further over the last few years, but I was definitely worried about like what my mom would think. And, mm. and when I finally told her, the first thing she actually asked was, well, are you going to get out of the military? And so when part of my identity is kind of wrapped up in the military, I didn't want to have to face that. And I was like, I'm, no, I'm not going to get out of the military mm-hmm. um, because I didn't think it was any of their business. And, and it wasn't, right? Don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other part of me coming out was... She was like, well, what do you want me to say? And I was like, the only thing I need to know is that you're still going to love me. And thankfully, she was like, well, that's not going to change. And and I know a lot of families don't afford that to their kids. But thankfully, mm-hmm. she did. My parents did. Mm-hmm. Um, funny enough, her brother came out to her like two weeks later. And he's wow. like 20 years older than I am. So he had been married for 20 years to a woman and finally you know, decided to be himself. So I think it really kind of changed her perspective on a lot of things Mm -hmm. and kind of helped her accept me for me and him for himself. So Mm -hmm. good to see. Yeah. And of course, we don't want to be a religion bashing podcast. Of course, I'm not interested in that slant. And yet we do have to acknowledge that over 80% of children in America are raised in a religious home. And historically, a number of religions have uh, anti-LGBT messages. So most people who come to realize that they are not straight or cisgender have some grappling to do in terms of, well, how will my religious community, how will my family take this information it sounds like from your perspective, you were more interested in your own family. How will they receive mm-hmm. your message? Mm-hmm. And can you tell us more about how over the years you've come to realize your religion receives you, your authentic you? So interesting, like I've become more agnostic than anything. I still think that there that there's something in being spiritual and definitely agree with that. But there's still a piece of me that thinks that there is a God and Christianity is a thing, obviously, or, you know, for some reason that has perpetuated so long, but have I figured out why? I don't know. As a people being scared, probably. But when I think about organized religion, I don't have any desire to go sit in a congregation and be judged by people who go and do their own sinning of other things. Mm. You know, we can debate that all day long um, because, I mean, there's various ways to get into that, but I'd rather do my own spiritual things like, you know, pick up the guitar and sing and sing hymns or sing Catholic hymns. And that's how I feel closer to a God or just peace. I did that this weekend. So, and it's very helpful, especially with the stressful job. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. I'm remembering once when we were stationed in Italy, I was having a bad day and we went and we got gelato because that's what you do when you're stationed <laughs> in Italy. Yeah. And you also sang me a soothing song. 
while you played it on your guitar. (laughs) I was like, I'm so grateful that you are the kind of friend that you are. You just know how to be there for other people. And I feel happy that you've kind of recognized that maybe you need to self-select out of a community that isn't as welcoming as you, maybe. I'm wondering too about your sense of community in the military. Have you felt accepted in your various roles in the military? Yeah, actually, I um, I feel pretty lucky in that regard. I haven't come across any discrimination that I know of, thankfully. I was concerned with my current boss who came in when he took over from my previous boss. and. It was interesting because I read his bio and I saw that he was from BYU. And when you read that, you're just like, oh boy. Okay. So likely Mormon and you don't know how they're going to take that. They're the nicest people in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But it turns out like he's the nicest person in the world, Um, (laughs) but probably one of the most accepting people in the world as well. And we've had some of the best conversations and we have a great relationship, a great working relationship and a friendship. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Can't tell right there. And I'm very thankful about that. And I think about, you know, being so worried about how that was going to play out. And actually my, the deputy group commander is very accepting. The group commander is very accepting. Same thing with the chief. I mean, I remember us talking before where that's still kind of a concern that that some of our leaders, you're worried how they will perceive you when they find out that you are in a same-sex relationship because you never know if that if their beliefs are going to permeate into how they treat you during the day. It shouldn't, but you never know, right? Mm-hmm. But thankfully, I've, I've never experienced that. And uh, I'm fortunate for it. And I know a lot of people have not experienced that. Mm-hmm. And we know from the research that in terms of disclosing a, possible, a possibly stigmatizing identity, we'll do a lot of checking for cues of rejection or cues of acceptance. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what are some cues of acceptance that you've noticed among your leadership? So I guess if you happen to kind of like, you know, talk about certain politics that might tip you off a little bit, even though a lot of times we try not to talk about that in the military, um, but still it might come up, you know, as long as you keep it civil. But usually if it's one way, it tends to, to give you an idea that they may be more accepting. And that's not always the case with everybody. There may be conversations where people bring up that their family member may be with or married to someone of the same gender. And so it gives you that affirming, it gives you the affirmation, I should say, that you're like, oh, okay, well, then it'll be all right. And then, and or they just support or say outright that they're an ally or anything like that. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think, I think with the current boss, he had asked like if I was married or something like that. In a civil union. Just, <laughs> <laughs> nearly. My, um, what did I say? Uh, I think I just answered with like she. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Because um, I am trying to be better at just... I mean, not really hiding because that's not fair and it's not fair to her. Mm-hmm. Um, even if she's not there, it's still not fair to her. Mm-hmm. And then letting go of it's not my problem. If someone else has a problem with it, that's their problem. It's not mine. Mm-hmm. So that's freeing as well. That's mm-hmm. nice to let that go. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I found in my own dissertation research too on LGBT service member outness is that some folks just decided to skip looking for cues. They're just like, too much cognitive load. I am hereby not worried about if somebody is, you know, from whatever religious background and I assume they'll reject me. I am who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I am with, I date people of the same sex and that's just what it is. You know, and there's some risks there for sure. Mm -hmm but also super freeing, like you're saying here. Mm. And as I get older, I think that's kind of where I have had it as well. And 
I guess if it just comes up in conversation, like, well, who are you dating or are you married or things like that, then just kind of say what, mm-hmm. what you would normally say in a conversation and then just kind of watch their face. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's kind of fun. <laughs> what would you, just you be looking for? Come across <laughs> and you watch the realization and you're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially when some people are like, I had no idea. And you're like, really? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is like the best response? What do you mean? That that people have seen so far? Yeah. Or that that when I tell them? Right. When you say, well, my girlfriend or she and I, blah, blah, blah. Mm. I don't know. Let's see. I think it was, it hasn't, it wasn't even a work. I think it was actually at a restaurant or, and then we were sitting at the bar and he was like, well, why are you, it wasn't even me and my girlfriend. It was me and a friend. And there, the guy was like, why are two pretty girls sitting at a bar by themselves? And I was like, those are my girlfriends coming to pick us up. And he, just, <laughs> he just stopped and he looked at us and he was like, oh, okay. And I was like, I'll take another glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you know, check your bias, buddy. Yeah. Um, Rocked his world. Trust yeah, maybe a little bit, but other people, I mean, most of the time they don't really have anything to say or they're like, oh, okay, cool. And some people are like, huh, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like a cool thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of where our society is maybe going, yeah, that it's just exactly. like not that interesting anymore. Right. It's not a thing. And, Cool. And, and I, I'm glad it's going that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly some pockets, that's not at all the case. And it still opens right. you up to violence and rejection and discrimination. But there are pockets where it's just kind of not that salient of a variable, maybe, for you even or for those around you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to get a sense of in your... So this podcast is for behavioral health providers in the military. And I want to get a sense of if you have had any experiences disclosing that you're in a same-sex relationship to healthcare providers in the military. Yeah, actually, I was, it started, I'd gone to see my, my primary care doctor and he had started a medication for me and he was like, you know, hey, just, it's one medication that can cause like, uh, bad outcomes if you become pregnant. So I need to double check to make sure you're not pregnant. I was like, um, not a problem. It's <laughs> not, you don't have to worry about that. And he was like, well, I mean, it, it's category X. So it really could cause like a fetal demise if you happen to be pregnant. I was like, um, hold on. Because he had called me on my phone and I went to my office and I <laughs> It's like, no, you're not understanding. <laughs> I was like, I don't sleep with men. And he was like, Oh, got it. And so <laughs> he dropped it. Um, mm. But I completely understand where he's coming from because people will say whatever to get out of getting, like doing certain tests and that kind of stuff. And as a provider myself, you have to do what you can in order to protect the patient. And that's, it's a double-edged sword because you want to believe the patient and you, and you want to maintain their dignity without displacing a trust, but at the same time, you also have to do what you need to do in order to assure that there isn't a pregnancy. And especially for myself and working in emergency medicine, we've seen a lot and people don't know, and you don't know what people have done. They could say one thing and you have something else. For him, he didn't make me go get a pregnancy test, but it's definitely a discussion that people have had and they they get mad when they have to go do these tests when they're like, I do not sleep with men. And to explain like why we do these things, Mm -hmm. you know, I definitely understand both sides. Mm -hmm. That's one that we heard a lot in our interviews of LGBT service members among the women just saying, I'm so tired of having to convince my primary care manager that I don't sleep with men. They don't believe me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned that you yourself are a provider. How do you communicate to your patients that you are LGBT affirming? Assuming you do. So I think it depends on if I, if it's going to 
be helpful in any way. I think if I can pick up on um, any cues that the patient is LGBTQIA, anything like that, and um, then I will do what I can to kind of cue them that I am affirming. Uh, I don't have on my badge like a little pin or anything like that. I do have a pin. I just keep forgetting to put it on the badge. <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually is a, a PA pin that is a uh, pride flag, which would be nice to to have there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, honestly, I just treat all my patients the same. And that's just with dignity and respect. And I don't care whether you're straight or gay or whatever. It's just... I think I probably do spend a little extra time if I if I know that someone is LGBTQ just because sometimes they don't necessarily get that particular chance to talk with providers or they don't get a chance to bring up what they truly want to bring up, Mm -hmm. Um, especially, say, for gay males, if they want to bring up questions about starting on medications or things like that. Um, we don't do too much of that necessarily in the ED, but when I was in primary care, um, talking about that was something that I would definitely bring up with them and and help them feel comfortable to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've also read that and heard that it can be a good idea to have affirming intake paperwork. So mm-hmm. kind of from right off the bat, mm-hmm. uh, the patient already knows that this is an affirming clinic because mm-hmm. maybe the gender question. It has many genders as the options. Maybe there's a sexual orientation question, which would be Mm -hmm. new in a military setting. It would. There was a patient that checked into um, to the ED one day and they said that they were, I believe, non-binary. And the admin person came to me and was explaining what was going on. And I was flight commander at the time. And I was like, well, let's do something about that. And so we could make our own labels. And I said, like, we'll go ahead and change the label. So we did. And we went back to the person and we changed, we changed the label and you could see the look on their face because they were so happy mm-hmm. that we listened to them. And it was a younger, I believe it was a young, younger kid and maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so teenager, I should say, not kid, but to just to help them feel safe and heard um, mm-hmm. instead of people always trying to tell them who they are when you know that they are experiencing all of these different feelings, why not help them out? Mm-hmm. You know? So it was nice to be able to do that. Yeah. And I really like how you realized how much power you had in that situation. I loved how you said, we can create our own labels. Like, I, I know that you meant that literally, but mm-hmm. I'm also recognizing... Figuratively, yeah. yeah. Yeah, figuratively as well. <laughs> you know, same goes for intake paperwork. I remember changing the Aviano Mental Health Clinic intake paperwork to be more inclusive of genders and marital statuses. And we can all do that. I mean, sure, check with the boss mm-hmm. if you're not the boss, but... Every medical organization, social work, psychology organization is LGBT affirming now. So, mm-hmm. and also the military as well, politically speaking, pol- you know, policy wise is LGBT affirming. There's really not a good reason for us not to go that direction. Mm-hmm. And one, it gets accurate information from the patient. And two, it communicates to them that you can be open and honest in your appointment today. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. and. Yeah, I remember I had a, I was going out to get a brand new patient and I can't remember exactly what their name was, but I'm going to say it was like Elizabeth or something. Mm-hmm. And I never seen them before. I go out into the lobby and there's nobody there but a man. I'm like, where the heck is Elizabeth? And then I was like, Katie, that could be Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. That could be. <laughs> yeah. So this person yeah. is wearing, you know, stereotypically male apparel, you know, hair probably was, you know, binding their chest. And I was like, Elizabeth? 
and they came back and there there they were and they sat down very very kind of rigid in the office and I was like oh this one's gonna I'm gonna really have to (laughs) get this person to feel comfortable and so I was like oh Elizabeth is that what you go by she was like yeah and gave me like some other very girly nickname and I was like oh, okay welcome in I give my spiel and I can tell that she's just like very very rigid and I said something like so I can tell that you're you know you kind of present as more masculine I would say do you identify as male or and I just like gave her that opening and she oh my gosh you will not believe it was like her shoulders just went down like three inches she Aww. breathed out I think she sat back in the couch like <sighs> yeah. And she said, no, you know, I get to ask that a lot. Like, are you, are you a boy? And I'm like, no, I'm a girl. I identify as a girl. I've just always dressed this way. And it was like the ice just cracked open. And I know that not every provider would necessarily want to go there mm-hmm. right away. Maybe that's a stylistic choice. Later on, we were able to identify that she dates women and very much identifies as a woman herself, despite presenting as a man. And it's kind of interesting because a couple of days later, I was, you know, my job is as a behavioral health consultant. So I need to go talk to the PCM after I see the patient and say, this is what we were dealing with. Right. And the, the PCM was like, oh, that's the transgender patient. Right. And I was like, no. And they were like, yeah, she's, she's, they're trans. And I was like, I promise you they're not. <laughs> I asked. Yeah. Um, and I, and, um, you know, so we also need to catch ourselves and not assume right. these sorts of things. Like it might be the first time you ever ask a patient, what's your pronoun? Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It gets more and more comfortable every time. And then to give LGBT affirming care, that means that we're documenting appropriately in the note. Mm-hmm. We are speaking respectfully about this person's sexual orientation and gender identity in meetings and in group supervision. It can just become a new, pervasive, inclusive culture. And we have the power to do that, which is so cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I've gone on my rant. Sorry about that. We're interviewing you. (laughs) It was a happy rant. I want to hear from your perspective. What would you say the military is doing well in terms of inclusion of sexual minorities? Well, I think minus the the pause recently, actually doing diversity and inclusion has been something that we've sorely needed over the last forever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Minus the last administration and their need to not have that. I don't, I didn't quite understand where they were going with that and why we had to stop Mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad that that's something that we can bring back and having Pride Month and just allowing people to to be as they are. I'm glad that we can look further into transgender rights and medical care and things like that. I just hope that we can stop politicizing it so that when we say we're going to do something, we don't change it with each administration, right? So mm-hmm. that really has severely hurt so many people. And I'm happy that, you know, Colonel Pram has taken on this LOE from the wit that, I mean, she's the best person to do that. And I'm excited to see where she takes it. Can you Um, translate LOE and wit? So line of effort for the women's initiative team for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people that are trying to materialize a lot of the issues and concerns that transgender people in the military have through high visibility people. So you have you have people in higher places, such as mm-hmm. like the Pentagon, that can help push a lot of these issues through instead of it just being like a grassroots effort at the very bottom. So you actually get momentum on a lot of these. And it may take two years for something to get through instead of five years. Mm-hmm. Um, or we have, you know, the, was it the, the hair policy change, which took five years mm-hmm. um, and that could have taken a lot longer, you know, but right. I'm, I'm glad to see that the, that hopefully we're getting back on track um, specifically with the, the transgender stuff. Mm-hmm. I, you know, 
want to see more of the medical side get back on track as well. So mm-hmm. and it's I'm glad that they have right. actually done more with that in the recent years and that they've pushed out how to actually treat transgender personnel as well. Uh-huh. So. Yes. And mm-hmm. we actually interviewed Colonel Fram on this diversity series as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're pointing out something that we found in the research too, which is that folks really want, LGBT service members really want to see at least one person, a higher rank than them, open and out and well-respected and still doing well. And so when we have, you know, diverse ranks represented in the community, super powerful. Mm -hmm. I remember for a while when there was just like one openly gay general and then there was like one openly gay full bird colonel you know and now right. it's like take your pick and they've all always been in mm-hmm. <laughs> you just join and become a high-ranking person um right yes. yeah to see them you know to be a part of lit which is what lgbtq initiative team and which the air force now started and see general outerback and colonel ferris running that especially from a female perspective, to see women in those roles being able to just be them. And oh, by the way, they happen to be lesbian. And you're like, great. You wouldn't necessarily see that even five years ago. Obviously, they were there, but it wasn't something that was at the forefront of as much as it is now mm-hmm. and celebrated even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's definitely something that it's nice to see I kind of experienced what you were saying before that people do want to see someone that is, you know, higher ranking than them. And it was, I think, when I pinned on Lieutenant Colonel, um, someone mm, left I love my hearing comments. you say that. <laughs> someone had pinned, on, uh, someone had posted on one of the, I don't know, photos or something like that. She had said something like, it's great to see someone higher ranking who is like higher ranking lesbian or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't really think of it like that, but if that helps them, great. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, You inspired me to be more open and out. So great job, you. (laughs) (laughs) So I also want to get at any advice that you might have for military behavioral health folks. How can we be better advocates? When I was reading your question about that earlier, I wasn't sure like what angle you were meaning because I guess at the core of who you are, I would expect that you're advocates anyway because of what you do. So So interesting you should say that because shoot, homosexuality was in our diagnostic and statistical manual until the 70s. There are certainly people who are practicing now who would say, why would you choose to be gay or bi when you know that it's going to harm your life, that you're going to be, you know, marginalized, it's going to worsen your mental health? Mm -hmm. It was also 40 years ago. Mm, Yeah. You know, so are those people still practicing? Maybe they are. So perhaps they're the folks that are phasing out. But anybody may have the feelings that they do. And if they're a good provider and they don't agree with that, then they need to hand over that particular person to someone who is better suited. Right. And that's with anything. And it's the same thing as if I didn't feel comfortable giving someone birth control because of my religion. Right. And you have an obligation to make sure that that person is taken care of, that they get the right medication that they need. So I feel that the mental health provider would also have to do that. It gets a little hairy when you might be the only mental health provider, but Hmm. I guess I would also say to that, if you're the only one and you can't get past your own thoughts about that, then maybe you shouldn't be a mental health provider, right? Hmm. Then that's a problem. But if you have others that are available to be able to see that patient, then lucky for them, they have an out. It may not be the right thing. And it may not, I mean, that kind of is aggravating, right? Nobody likes to hear that. But from that, I would also say mental health providers need to mentor their other 
their colleagues Mm. to explain why this isn't necessary. It's not a choice. Mm. And if we're going to say that it's a choice, well, then we bring in the argument of, great, well, then when did you choose to be straight? Mm -hmm. Because you can't have one without the other. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, I remember hearing that for the first time and it was kind of like it shook my core a little bit. Like, oh, dang. Yeah, why are the only people who have a sexual orientation LGBT? LGB? It's like, no, no, mm-hmm. we all have sexual orientations. I'm just yeah. reserved for yeah. minority. Which is like we all have a gender. Yeah, there's no good without evil, right? You choose to be evil, you choose to be good. Mm-hmm. So people tend to feel like we are inherently one or the other. However, yeah. So, yeah. So, you're saying that there is something inconsistent with being a mental health provider and having homophobic or biphobic or transphobic views. And that if that is the case, maybe look to some of your colleagues who might be able to introduce you to some different perspectives. I think it comes down to biases, right? Like, we all have biases and we all have subconscious or not even subconscious where you have biases, you know that. But, and again, yes, look to your colleagues to help you out. But I think also just you're there to listen to the patient, let the patient talk and help them in small ways. It doesn't have to be like the big overarching factor all the time, like help them get through little steps, right? You can't help somebody. You're not going to fix everything in one day. Mm-hmm. person didn't get to where they were, say they're 30 years old. They didn't get to 30 years of their life with the stuff and the baggage that they have in one day. So mm-hmm. why unpack everything at that point in time? Just unpack little things at a time and you don't have to work, like sit there and bring your bias into it. Just deal with what you've been taught to help them learn how to get past that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I, mean, I feel like you can put your biases on a shelf to be able to help somebody <laughs> <laughs> deal with certain things. Just Absolutely. like we all do. We right. all learn how to compartmentalize. And if you can't do that, again, I bring that up as in like, then maybe you're not in the right field. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. When I have patients who have very vocal social or political views that are counter to mine or maybe even would wish harm upon me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got to be honest, it's harder. And sometimes I'll need to take extra deep breaths after they leave my room and like go for a walk and remember that I'm treating this person who I have unconditional positive regard for. And I think that their beliefs are vile. And also I want them to be well and their Mm -hmm. well-being is good for all of us, we're all interconnected. And I mean, it's, it's a heavier lift to provide quality care for people who don't like, um, or who we think are making poor choices. But I would say, what? Do you think you're strengthening yourself as a mental health provider when you are helping these types of people? Like you're, you're opening your worldview, at least a little bit, when you hear their side of the story or how they think of things, mm-hmm. or maybe you're solidifying yours, but I think that's you at least get to hear varying perspectives, mm-hmm. um, which I imagine could be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like a super hard workout. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing this. And then afterwards, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm glad I did that. Right. Everyone is better for it. And now I know that I can serve a larger swath of people than I thought I could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not to say that I've, you know, cracked the code or anything, but we all have biases that we need to be intentional about being aware of and setting aside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. I mean, working working in the emergency department, you see that all the time, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you you set your biases aside when you see the the unfortunate drug addict that comes in for the fifth time who they needed Narcan or whatever or Naloxone to bring them back to life. And do you know you want, like you're there to help them and you're trying not to judge them, but you know you do a little bit and you know mm-hmm. you're human and you hate yourself for feeling the way that you do. And you know that they hate themselves for feeling the way that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or maybe they're just, 
they don't care about their life anymore, but you know that you just want to help them and they want, sometimes the people do want help. They don't know how to help themselves, but Mm. I mean, all we can do is try to, to work on our humanity together and learn to put our our biases aside Mm -hmm. as best we possibly can. And then sometimes we have to lean on each other in order to be able to get past that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say I have been pleasantly surprised in my experience in the military that even if folks have never, you know, colleagues in the mental health world have never really thought about LGBT rights or they've just never been in that world before, they're open to learning. Mm -hmm. at least in my experience. And boy, you know, I'm open to teaching. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes. So there are a lot more people kind of on the fence, interested in being swayed Mm -hmm. than we would think. And just because somebody isn't, you know, doesn't have a LGBT rights sticker on as a bumper sticker on their car, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are opposed or exclusionary at all. They might just still be trying to figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. My boss a few weeks ago after when there was that kind of spree of the Asian women that were killed. Mm. um, And then it was like stop Asian hate and that kind of stuff. There was one of the members in our squadron who was, we were trying to get them to a a training and they didn't want to go because it was in the South. And when they explained why they were concerned because of all of the Asian hate, and then of course add COVID to everything, and that kind of kicked everything off. And when I explained to my boss like why, he inadvertently kind of giggled, but he did it in a way that it was because he is naive to that kind of stuff, and he recognized immediately he's like, I don't even know that that is. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, how did I not know that? And, mm. you know, we ended, up, we ended up not sending that person because of that and recognizing that that was something that would be probably more detrimental uh, than anything. Mm. Um, and they really didn't need to go to this training necessarily, but he was open to at least hearing about like what was going on. And I was just grateful that he was mm. willing to listen, you mm-hmm. know, and like I mentioned, you know, Mormon and you never know quite where they kind of fall in that spectrum of Mormonism. Uh, you know, some are very, very fundamentalism. Some are more on the other side of that spectrum of being accepting. Not that this really has anything to do per se with that, but it was just refreshing that he was willing to, to learn mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of people just kind of brush it off. You know? mm-hmm. And even that person's flight commander didn't know. Um, they're like, oh, because it wasn't something that they dealt with. Right. Absolutely. It's a kind of a luxury, a privilege to mm-hmm. not even have to walk through the world worrying about if you'll be harmed due to your skin color or due to, you know, the way that you present your gender. And the least, we, if we are part of the privileged majority, the least we can do is believe people when they tell us mm-hmm. it's not safe for me. I promise you. Right. And it sounds um, like that's what you're busted. Yeah. Person. I was reading something the other day and I found it really interesting because I don't, I don't know what it is that people have a hard time with definitions hmm. on either side. Hmm. Um, and I don't know what your experience is with this, but people want to define things. They want to be able to define where they fall then. And so we have this growing alphabet, right, of understanding themselves. And then you get the people who are like, you don't even know what you are. You keep, you know, picking different things. So how do you have pansexual when you have bisexual? It's either one or the other. And so when they try to explain, Hmm. people then are like, no, it just means this. And it's frustrating that people can't just like, listen with an open mind and or why does it matter? Does it affect you? You know, I I guess my question for you then is, have you had any patients that kind of have brought that up to you where they they struggle with kind of defining themselves and then how society sees them? Mm. Mm -hmm. 
I would say in my experience, most patients know exactly who they are. It's just a matter of trying to decide who in their life will be open and accepting to hearing that truth. Yeah. And I've had so, so many queer patients over the years. And it's usually at a time where they are ready to tell other people and they're terrified to do so. And that's why they're in my office. They're not in my office because they're queer. They're in my office because society tells us queer is bad and they're worried if their loved ones buy into that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what we will kind of dig into is who might be the most safe to tell? Um, When would you like to tell them? What would be kind of like a lower risk, lower stakes time to do so? The pros and the cons, this decisional balance sheet. And it just breaks my darn heart that we even need to spend any sessions talking about this. Yeah. Two straight or cis people need to go to therapy to find out when and how specifically, like what time of day is my mother in her best mood? I mean, I'm not exaggerating. These are the sorts of things yeah. we talk about so that I can disclose this very, uh, I don't know, just this kind of basic demographic information. So yeah, I would say less about figuring out who they are and more about figuring out where in the world that places them. Hmm, interesting. Okay. How about you? I think most of the people I've come across tend to know who they are too. But mm-hmm. then again, I mean, we only meet a certain number of people in our world, but then you have obviously the internet and the internet is a world of different interesting people mm-hmm. <laughs> that have, I don't know. Half the time, I don't even know that they're, they know what they're talking about. I wonder if they're just bots. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, but, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, uh, I don't know. I don't know why people have to get in other people's business all the time either. You know? mm-hmm. so, yeah. 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 If I want shit. you in my business, I will let you know. Yeah. Why does, <laughs> why does your opinion matter in this situation? I don't know. So. What I really love about you is that I know that we will be sitting next to a lake of some sort, having these same kinds of conversations when we're both old and gray. Mm-hmm. And we will know about two to 3% more then than we do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's Which okay. Is good enough for me. Yeah. Well, Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Julie Glover. It has been a pleasure to have you with us for this hour. I know I've enjoyed our conversations. I know our listeners have as well. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I don't get to be as eloquent as you are, but I appreciate the the chance to speak with you and to catch up. And hopefully this is helpful for some folks out there. But yeah, thanks again. Thank you.